Hey, it's Katie, and we're doing something a little bit different for this episode. I mean, everything is super crazy right now because it's the holidays, and I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted and also sick. We still wanted to have something for you guys to listen to, but we wanted to take a little bit of a break as well. So for this episode, we wanted to share a few of our favorite podcasts that we've been listening to to get us through the holidays. The end of the year has been hitting us pretty hard. (laughs) Like I said at the beginning, I got sick and of course we're traveling for holidays and doing lots of family and friend things, but it has given us a lot of time to kind of reflect on the last year, which is this year has just been really wild for us. All the stuff that's happened this year, I never thought that we were going to be at this point where we are right now. And it's just been... I don't really know how else to describe it. It's just so encouraging. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for all of you who have been listening. For those of you that don't know, we won a James Beard Award back in April, which was kind of a solidifying moment for us. We were doing this as a like, part-time fun thing. It was mostly just a cathartic release for me. And to receive a James Beard Award was kind of really validating that we were making something that other people actually wanted to listen to, (laughs) which was just a really, really cool and exciting thing. And I'm still not over it. And I don't think I will ever get over it. Plus, as we've been producing season two, we've been able to meet so many awesome people that are doing a lot of really cool things in the industry. And I know you've heard from a few of them already, but we have a few more coming up during the rest of season two. And there's just a lot of really cool people. And it gives me a lot of hope for where we're going in the industry. The other cool thing that we were able to be a part of was the Google Podcasts creator program that was um, done through PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. And they're just a super cool group of people that are that are doing a lot of training programs around podcasting for journalists or public radio people. And it was just so cool to spend a week in Boston with them and And now we're a part of this community of people who have come out of these PRX training programs. And it's just been really awesome to connect with other podcasters and other people who are making really cool things. So lots of really interesting and cool things that have happened this year. But I I think the thing that's been most exciting for me is just to connect with so many of you who, who have been listening. I love, love it, love it when people send me messages on Instagram or send us emails and tell us what you've been thinking. It's just been really cool to connect with a lot of people around, I mean, not even just in the U.S., but across the world that are listening and really thinking about the future of the food industry and trying to push things forward. And I just love that. I love it so much. So, of course, now reflecting on the past year and trying to figure out what the hell we're going to do over the next year, it's been... I mean, kind of overwhelming, but really exciting because we just have, there's so many different things we could do. So we've been talking about it amongst ourselves, me and Ricardo and Rachel, who is our new story editor. And we've had lots of interesting and some not so interesting ideas. One of the really big things for me is that I want to take the time to really read and answer the stuff that people are sending me. Somebody said that to me recently. They sent me an Instagram message and I I answered and they said they weren't expecting me to answer and I just thought that was so funny because 
it's just really great to hear from people. And so, of course, I'm going to answer because it's just really cool to have a conversation with somebody. And I hope you all know that, that you can reach out to me whenever with anything. And I will answer. That's what I love about podcasts. And that's what I love about the restaurant industry is that we're not alone. There are so many of us. And we're all thinking and feeling a lot of the same things right now. And I really, really hope that, you know, I really, really hope that we can have more of these conversations. So send me stuff whenever you want. Yeah, the fact that we're not alone is what I really love about podcasting and coming into this new community of podcasters has been really, really lovely because there are just so many really cool, interesting people that are doing things. And so that's what we wanted to do with this episode is to really, is to share some of the really cool things that people are doing. So we have a few different clips from some different podcast episodes that we really love. So we're going to jump into those. So this first clip that we have is from a podcast that is in the same PRX family that we are now a part of, which has been super cool. It's hosted by Paula Mardo and produced by Patrick Apino. It's called Long Distance, and it's stories in the Filipino diaspora. What I really love about it is the kind of the audio documentary style that they do. And I just, I can't get over the combination of like the sound and music and the stories that they put together. It's just absolutely beautiful. And even though it's not a food show, they do have a few stories in and around food, which have been fascinating to me. The first one that I listened to is actually in their first season. It's about tiki bars, which I would highly recommend listening to. But this episode is about the people behind Purple Yam in New York, Amy Bessa and Romy Dorotan. So a little bit of background. There was a president in the Philippines that declared martial law and a ton of people left, which um, I'm trying not to give too much away. So Amy and Romy were both some of those people that left and they became activists. So while they were away, they started working in restaurants. And one thing led to another and they became restaurateurs and they opened this really innovative and trailblazing restaurant in New York. So this restaurant thing came up and some friends said, oh, you can do it with $50,000. So I said, oh, that was easy. <laughs> and it turned out that it was not true. But Amy and Romy were ready to give it a shot. As Filipino immigrants, they saw a need for a kind of place that would satisfy cravings of fellow Filipinos for the foods they left behind. They envisioned a place where they could serve dishes from their childhood, as well as other cuisines and influences they picked up along the way. And the two of them made the perfect team. Romy would be the chef, Amy would run the business, and they would both collaborate on the menu. Using Amy's knowledge of Filipino cooking traditions and Romy's flair for creative experimentation. But before they got to restauranting, they started product testing. We first started doing vinegars. We infused vinegars with herbs and spices. In beautiful bottles, beautiful design. And we sold them to Dean and DeLuca. Yep, they sold beautiful vinegars to that Dean and DeLuca the once ultra-popular international grocery. Did you have a name for your company at all? Sandrion Vinegars. Sandrion Vinegars, yeah. After a great product testing run, they pulled funding from different sources, which was hard. 
I mean, try pitching someone to give you money for something you haven't even started yet. But they got through it, and most of the funding came from a loan they took out on their own home. A huge risk. But by this point, Amy and Romy were all in. August 1995, Sandrion, Asian Grill, and Merienda Bar opened. The concept was simple. Asian cuisine with Filipino food and flavors at the center. They used fresh, local ingredients to create original, unexpected dishes like quail and rabbit adobo, coffee roasted pompano, smoked spare ribs with the pickled Filipino relish, achara. In the afternoons, the front bar would serve merienda or snacks, mostly kakanin or rice-based desserts like puto, bibinka, and suman. Opening night was packed, and the food world took notice. Sandrian was featured in the Wall Street Journal, Gourmet Magazine, and the New York Times. In 1997, New York Magazine named it the best Pan-Asian restaurant in the city. But see, there was no social media. It all, like, fell on deaf ears. When we first started, we were riding a high, right? I mean, we had so much publicity. That high will always come down. That's the restaurant business. I remember, I think what was like the second year, third year, we kind of felt that it was make or break already. It was getting scary because we were no longer getting those packed nights that we were getting used to. I think we had a lot of fights in the very beginning. You, you know? guys? Yeah. You guys fought? Yeah, a lot. I wanted to kill him. <laughs> Besides fights, one of the biggest challenges was their concept. Romy says no one was coming in for merienda at the merienda bar. Apparently, New Yorkers preferred coffee and croissants to rice cakes and halo-halo. And audiences struggled to understand exactly what Sandrion was two Filipinos running a quirky, upscale Asian restaurant with Filipino flair, named after a French ballet in Soho, was different. Even Filipinos were skeptical. A lot of people recognized the taste, the way we approach Filipino food. And then there's the other group that says they are more concerned about authenticity. At Sandrion, you could nosh on whimsical takes on Filipino classics like the sour soup sinigang with pan-crusted fish fillets, or purple-colored ube pandesal with adobo flakes. You could even order a shrimp curry or Balinese lamb shank. And to drink, you'd sip on rare Chinese teas and microbrewed beers. They weren't exactly striving for authenticity, whatever that even means. I remember, I don't know if he remembers, but we had a very agonizing conversation. Are we wrong in our concept? Should we have been more commercial? Because a lot of people were saying, well, why don't you do balut, steam table? You know, all the things that you don't want to do. Why didn't you want to do duraturo? Because there were already people doing that. Why do what they're doing? We're not good at doing that, you know. We're good at something else. Amy and Romy put everything into Sandrion. 
their time, their effort, their money, their house. Like a lot of startups, they were doing something so new. People didn't really know what to make of it yet. But Amy and Romy decided they'd stay the course. And for this to work, they had to make some changes. The rest of this episode is awesome. So please go listen to it. It's on all of your podcast apps, or you can check out our website or theirs, longdistanceradio.com. And they also have Long Distance TV, which are a bunch of mini documentaries that are complementary to the podcast. And so I'll link to this one in the show notes. And it's about Amy and Romy and their take on this quintessential dish called Fish Synagogue. Another little something that we're very grateful for, for this season and for this year, is our very first season sponsors. And so we're going to have a quick message from them. In the spring of 2019, I helped open a few different restaurants within the span of a couple months. You know, the usual process of recipe testing, ordering, frantically working with contractors to get the kitchen built out, and then the dreaded hiring process. We were always up against deadlines and understaffed, and I didn't know how we were gonna pull it off. Paired is how we pulled it off. Paired is an app where you, as a kitchen manager or chef, post shifts that you need people for, and Paired fills those shifts with vetted, qualified restaurant professionals. They match people with similar experiences or backgrounds to make sure you get someone who can handle the work you need done. At one of the restaurants I helped open, we were using three paired pros a night to help us get through opening, and many of them were so great we ended up hiring them full-time. Paired is a great tool to give you peace of mind, whether for a, my dishwasher just called out Friday night, or a weekly shift you've had a hard time hiring for. I would highly recommend giving it a try. To get started with Paired and save 30% off your first shift, visit Paired.com copper or use the offer code COPPER during booking. That's P-A-R-E-D dot slash COPPER. You may have heard us talk about this next podcast because, honestly, we just absolutely love them. It's called Racist Sandwich. It was previously hosted by Soleil, who is now the San Francisco Chronicle food reviewer, and here. But now their producers have taken over as hosts, Stephanie and Juan, and they were actually nominated for a James Beard Award this last year for Stephanie's piece about erasing black barbecue, which is one of my all-time favorite episodes, so I would really recommend listening to that one. But they have just so many awesome episodes. Each episode has really important conversations around race, gender, class, and how it intersects with the food world, and they're just so interesting and so important, and I just love it. So in this episode, Juan is catching up with Carla T. Vasquez, who is a food justice advocate and a food historian. She is working on a book called Salvi Soul, where she is researching and writing a Salvadoran cookbook that highlights the stories of Salvadoran women. So she and Juan talk about how she learned from her mother and grandmother and the power of cookbooks to pass on stories and all the obstacles she's facing while she's trying to get her book published. And yeah, it really started with wanting to know how to cook my grandmother's food, cook my mother's food. Um, And when I started the process of documenting their recipes, I realized that it it wouldn't be the whole recipe if I didn't also um, document their actual story because as they would 
talk about their food and their technique and who taught them the recipe, these stories of who they were as young women, these stories of who of what they wanted to be, um, of what they thought their future would look like started to come out. And it was such a different way of relating to them as their relative. Um, and I thought, of course, you know, when I was growing up, how I received culture, and I was so hungry for it because I didn't understand um, all... In, when I was a kid, I guess I just had a lot of angst that, you know, very typical Im immigrant angst as a teenager. Um, and I felt like I got a lot of answers when we were at the dinner table. Um, you know, we always got a story every mealtime. And I always tell folks that as I was nourishing my body with the actual food, um, the stories that came through the vessel of food were nourishing the part of my soul that wanted to understand where I came from, that wanted to understand why we left our home. Why Why did I have to leave the place? Why, um, why was it dangerous to stay? What is it that you're trying to trying to find? What, what what are you asking these women? What kind of facts are you trying to like uncover? So every every single interview I've had, it's been 25 women, and every single interview um, has been different. Um, so with my grandmother, which who was the very first interview, um, I wanted to know more about why she stayed with my grandfather. Um, they had a very complicated relationship and I wanted to know what was, what was the reasoning? What, what was her why? Um, she suffered a lot as a woman in Salvador and I felt like she was this powerful woman and she had this, she, she, she always walked around like she didn't have problems, but she had so many. And I wanted to know what provoked someone in that disposition to stay in a relationship that as an adult I realized was very damaging. And so I went in with some questions. And it, it, I always feel emotional talking about it because it was such a... a such a rare and unique day. She had just gone out of the hospital. Her health was deteriorating, and it was a day when it when it rained. And in LA, it, it just doesn't rain a lot, so rainy days are kind of special, right? And I showed up to her house, and you know she had her oxygen um, mask on, and she was carrying it all over the place. And I realized that I just needed to be there to listen to her. And she starts talking to me about the first time that she went to go see a movie and the detail that she remembers from that day in her 20s uh, was so moving. And she's telling me all these things and she's telling me about the time that she was almost raped, the time that she had to run away, like all of these things that I had no idea. And I realized that my perception of my grandmother was just in this her decision to stay with my grandfather that she was a lot more than that story and I I am so grateful that I experienced that and it's 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 hard to um sorry the reason why I really wanted to do this was because I knew that these stories cost her something. She had skin in the game to to live 
And I I realized, you know, her story can't have been in vain. And if I don't document these details, it'll be as if the steps she took to move her family forward are forgotten. And she was too precious. And she was too important in my life to let that happen, to not want to document her story so that we would know who Lucia Campos was and what she did for her loved ones. And I felt that that was a very um, important thing to do. Um, And so after having that experience with her and just sitting there and talking to her, um, I remember feeling like this overwhelming um, you know, wanting to cry and wanting to to just release some of that emotion that I felt was building up inside of me. And so I told my grandmother, like, my Lucy, I'm going to go to the kitchen and I'm going to make you a tea because you need a tea, even though she didn't need tea. I said, I'm going to go make the tea and I'll be right back. And uh, I go and I start making her chamomile tea and she, I hear her walking down the hall and I hear her little oxygen machine right behind her. And I remember like stirring the spoon in the cup and think, feeling annoyed. Like I told her to stay there, you know, I need some time to, you know, recover. And, you know, she, she comes up to me and kind of walks in and says, Carlita, Carlita, Carla, Carla, I, I forgot to tell you why I did all of that, why I chose this life, why I decided to endure. And I said, okay, mama, I turn around and I say, why, what was it? And she looks at me and she says, it was all in the name of progress. I knew I had to do something to make sure that your mom had an opportunity. And if it took me doing it for her, I was going to do it. And I remember hugging her and saying, okay, mama, I have your tea ready. And so we go back and we sit down and she enjoys her tea and she passed away this year. And that was my last interview with her. So I'm linking to the whole episode in the show notes, which I would highly recommend listening to, as well as their entire back catalog. It's just so good. They're on all of your podcast apps. The last one we have for you is from some other friends also in the Bay Area. They're called Salt and Spine. This is the other thing I just love about podcasting is making new friends. And we just started having a conversation with Brian over Instagram one time and And now we're working on stuff together, which is really cool. So in Salt and Spine, the host Brian does interviews with cookbook authors, but really digs into the stories of their lives and their recipes, which I absolutely love. It's one of my favorite part about cookbooks is, you know, really reading the stories and understanding where the recipes came from. So this episode is about Ivan Orkin and Chris Yang's new book, The Gaijin Cookbook. So you might have heard about Ivan Orkin, or as a lot of people call him, Ivan Ramen, because that's what his restaurants are called. He is a chef from Long Island originally, but he spent his life studying and living in Japan. And the word gaijin actually means outsider or non-Japanese. And so this book is a lot about how he comes to term with that word. 
So let's let's talk about this book for a minute then, the the Gaijin cookbook. So first, maybe for listeners who might not be familiar, let's talk about the word Gaijin. So mm-hmm. I think it probably most literally sort of translates to outsider. Is that right? Yeah, and outsider, how do, uh-huh. really just not Japanese. Right. I mean, uh, but outsider, yes. Yeah. And you write in the beginning, Ivan, that you used to cringe when you heard it. Um, you say, I used to cringe when I heard it. It took years to overcome the shame of it. Can you talk about sort of your association with the, the term gaijin? Well, I mean, I came to Japan originally in 1987. Uh-huh. A long, I mean, Japan's come a very long way. It's changed a lot. You know, it's, uh, the tourism there is spectacular now. It's been right. great for the country. And I think, you know, along with just changing times, I think, you know, Japan has globalized a lot and they're much more receptive to having people from other countries visiting. Okay. Uh, yeah. When I first went, you know, I think that people were still, you know, there were, you meet people, they'd say, Oh, wow. I, I've never met an American before, sure. you know, and, and, and they'd be, you know, so surprised. And, uh, I mean, Japanese people have a very specific way of doing things. And a lot of times foreigners come to live and they're really not amenable to doing it the way everybody else does, which makes Japanese people wary because their system is rigid, but it works really, really well. It's why when people visit Japan, they're like, I love this place. It's great. Right. It's clean. It's, uh-huh. it's bright. There's all these great things happening. And, and part of the reason people like it so much is because there's this rigidity that, that just makes the flow go, yeah. go in the right direction and exactly. almost never goes in the wrong direction. And, and so, um, I, I think that there's always been a difficulty. So I think early on, this use of the word gaijin was because, you know, a lot of people would come and not understand the way things were and they would push back or they would say, well, why do I, I'm not, I'm not a Maro Japanese. Why do I have to do that? And, yeah. and, and so there's a certain amount of animosity and just the way a homogenous society works. Sure. You know, I think that, I mean, this book is very much about home cooking and helping people right. put food on the table. And it's about, you know, like us trying to convey the, the things that, uh, the ways that we eat at home and the way the things I've learned from Ivan to, to other people. But if there's like a overarching thesis of the book, it's, it's kind of captured just right there in that first sentence that you read, you know, like, um, sort of doing away with any kind of shame or, or whatever about being an outsider is really what this book is, is about too. It's a, it's about, um, seeing yourself as always an outsider and, and mm-hmm. being curious and open and yeah, like, not being ashamed to be a gaijin, I think, right. is, is really what it is. Yeah, I mean, you really decided to embrace it by making it the title, right? I think well, I read, just, Chris, it was your idea to make it the title. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think that um, I, Ivan and I wanted to do this book. And, and I think that given the, the time and place that we're at right now, um, <laughs> it's not it's not really an ideal time uh, for a, a a Jewish guy from Long Island and a Chinese guy to write a book about Japanese cooking. If if you're looking not to stir the pot too much, like that that can tickle some people in the wrong ways. But I, I think that that's silly. And but that I, was I the whole point like, of the book. The whole uh-huh. point of the book and the and why calling it gaijin is so poignant is because. I love Japan with every ounce of my being and I've dedicated my whole life. I opened a ramen business not because I love ramen, but because I love Japan. Okay. And yeah. so this ability to be sort of on the outside, just observing and, and feeling this, this just incredible warmth about what I'm observing. And then, you know, Chris has been that way about many, many things and many cultures and many types of cuisines. And then in our, in the course of our relationship, he's been drawn into, into, you know, getting my viewpoint on Japan. Right. And so, and then as we wrote the book together, we started to really coalesce around this idea of, of 
Japan and Japanese cuisine. Yeah. And I think that so many people who travel, you know, not only to Japan, but anywhere get sold this kind of false bill of goods by, you know, travel companies and, and media that like, you can be a local, you can live like an insider. Right. Here's the insider's guide to Tokyo. And, and I just think it's such nonsense. Yeah. You know, like, and it's, you're just, who are you fooling to think like, Oh, like they're not gonna, they don't notice that I'm here. Like I'm blending in, you know, and like, why do you want that either? You know, I think like, of course we all want to, we don't, none of us want to feel like we're being hoodwinked and, and, and taken for tourists or whatever, but it's, it's, it's almost like you're, you're fooling yourself, right? Like why not own that you're an outsider and that, and that you could observe these things as an outsider, as Ivan has for his whole career. Um, you know, he, he succeeded as a, a ramen chef in Japan because he was an outsider, both because like that was something of a novelty, but also because he could look at things that were done a certain way with, with kind of fresh eyes and say, well, I don't know anything about anything. But I, I sure know what I like. So I'm going to try and just figure it out myself. And, right. and like, that's, that's again, you know, the, the book, we're so happy about the recipes and, and, and everything that's in there. But we're also really happy about this, uh, about putting forward this notion of, of being a gaijin and not being ashamed or, or, or anything like and that. And also, li- you know, living it, you know, it's, yeah. it's, the fact is you don't, you don't have to live in Tokyo for 30 years to be able to cook from this book or to understand what we're cooking. Sure. It's, it's, I mean, for me, this book is just sort of a, a journal or just, you know, you know, a writing of my family recipes, you know, for the last right. 30 years and especially, specifically the last 17. And I've been with my wife and she and I, a lot of these recipes are recipes that she loves or things that she asked for where we were, you know, could you make this or that? And I would say, well, I don't, I don't know. Tell me how it's made and I'll make it. And, sort of just over the years. And then, and so writing the book was hard only in the sense that I had to make myself go back and rethink everything for, so that it would be easy for people. Cause I'm a little bit of a Jewish Japanese grandma, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And and so we were, I was very disciplined about, about, about writing the recipes out and, Mm -hmm. you know, because I really wanted this to be, you know, to me, I feel like most Americans know Japanese flavors even they might not be sure, but then, but, you, but if you've ever had even just some kind of a teriyaki salmon or chicken or something, right. you know, at its most banal form, they've had it. Right. And so, but they've never imagined they could actually have it in their own home. And, and, you know, Chris and I have, I think we've really put together a book that makes that doable. And, and with the magic of uh, the internet, you can get all the ingredients and, and, and there's not that many you need to be able to pull off uh, these recipes. We'll be right back with... Brian has a lot of other really awesome interviews that focus primarily on women and people of color in a really white male-dominated field like publishing, which is really cool. Some of my other favorites, their most recent one is with some of the people behind La Casina, the business incubator here in San Francisco. Also, the East Bay Cooks live show was really interesting. Plus, if you follow them on Instagram, they do a lot of cookbook giveaways. And I mean, who doesn't need another cookbook? So check them out. Thank you all so much again for being a part of Copper and Heat and for listening and writing to us and really just staying involved. I cannot tell you how much we appreciate it. Like I said at the beginning, we still have a few specific ways that you can get involved and send us some of your ideas. So the first is that we are starting to look for ideas for season three. So if you have any large themes that you're interested in hearing about, 
send them our way. Also, if you have any other financial topics you want to hear about, let me know because we're talking about investment and tipping, gentrification, and some new business models in upcoming episodes. But if there's something else that you want us to check out, like definitely send it to us. The next big one that I want to tackle is staging. But I want it to be more of a conversation around it because I know that a lot of people have a lot of different opinions. So if you want to be a part of our episode about staging, I would love to hear about your opinion. I don't know if you think that staging is completely outdated and you don't know why we do it anymore, or if you think it's the only way that people can get their foot in the door. There's a lot of different opinions, so tell me yours. I'd love to hear some of your holiday craziness stories. So you can email me, comment, send a voice memo, however you want to do it. If you also are just feeling like you're in a really rough spot right now and need somebody to talk to about it, you are more than welcome to send me a message at any time. I promise I'll answer. So we'll be back in a couple weeks with the rest of our overhead season. The next episode is with the people behind the Opening Soon podcast, as well as Tillit, the workwear company. And they're going to tell us a little bit about a restaurant that they tried to open back in 2010 called Goods. So stay tuned for that. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye.